0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers, and this evening is about uh, One Pope Emeritus Benedict Sixteenth, Part 2. I do have John O'Hara uh, in studio with me this evening, which I'm excited about because we really will have the opportunity to not only continue our reflections into Benedict Sixteenth, but also go back into some of his key bio pieces and to just enrich our understanding of Benedict the Sixteenth and his life. So John, great to have you with me another evening.
1: Great to be here, Joe. Thank you.
0: So John, as I was just mentioning last week, um, we hit some bio pieces as well as um, one or two key theological reflections. I made a point to summarize his encyclicals and then offer up a reflection from his Wednesday audience as he was reflecting into the new man with St. Paul. And so certainly we will get into more theological reflections, but I know Um, you had some things you wanted to talk about as it relates to his life, and certainly some things that stuck out to you.
1: Well, personally, um, when I came back to the Catholic Church in 97, the first major book I read was The Confessions of St. Augustine. The second one was The Introduction to Christianity Mm. by Pope Benedict, Yes, and those are two of the best books I've ever read in my life. Wow. One Mm. little thing I would like to bring up about his life. As you know, you mentioned he was involved in World War II and was part of the German Air Force. And as things fell apart in 1945, I think Hitler was dead. I believe Hitler died around April 30, sometime around late April, May 1st. but Hitler was already dead. Mm -hmm. He decided to desert, that is leave, you know, even though there's really no more Hitler empire going on, he leaves. But this is, shall we say, a capital offense And so he took a route that he knew he was going to walk home. He went by a railroad tunnel and came out, and there were two armed German soldiers there, and they were assigned to shoot deserters. But he was injured, and he had an injured arm, and they looked at each other, and they said, you're injured? Yes, I am. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. And he walked on. I mean, this could have changed history. Could have changed history, yeah. I mean, this is chaos. Remember, Germany really didn't have a government right now, uh, the dictator was gone, and um, people were being shot. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. Very, okay, so then he does make it home, and in the home there were uh, two SS people. I think they were there asking for food.
0: Yes. But yes. Uh,
1: you know they, they were hanging people, not these particular SS unemployed people, but yeah. uh, and he uh, escaped that. When the Americans came in, since he was a uniformed soldier officially. They sent him to a POW camp. Now, this is around 1945, and he was in the POW camp until about mid-June 45, so he wasn't there for very long. But when he left, he took in his little knapsack a notebook so he could write down reflections (laughs) and, as he says in his book, Milestone, so I could write some Greek hexameter. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that's, that's Greek poetry, Dactelic Examiner. I mean, that's, this is my kind of 17 year old kid. I mean, that's, that's what you and I would be doing yeah. at 17, right, Joe?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm out shooting hoops for five hours. He's writing Greek. You know, one of the things that strikes me, John, as you're talking there um, in relationship to his near death experiences, how we've been talking about over the past few years about a number of different near death experiences that many of the great Christian thinkers had, certainly. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about this with John Paul II. His two or three near-death experiences. On one occasion, he probably should have died, and that's not the assassination attempt in 1981, right? That's another occasion. And here again, we have in Benedict XVI, um, one or two occasions that he had no business sticking around, so to speak. And when you read the bio of Pope Francis, there are a number of occasions when he was growing up in the totalitarian regime where he's from that he had his own share of near-death experiences. So it's always fascinating to kind of go back into history and to see how God uh, was working providentially in these men's lives.
1: Pope Benedict is amazing. I, he became uh, a priest and uh, went into the academic end of things mainly, and uh, he was at Vatican II, of course. And then in 1967, at Tubingen, he was assigned a series of lectures, and he began to write a book, which turned into Introduction to Christianity translated into 17 different languages, uh, maybe one of his bestsellers, but um, that that was a, a really an outstanding book that he wrote, and you also mentioned that he was on a theological commission because Vatican II was having splits. I mean, the Church was in turmoil during mm-hmm. this time, and uh, the theological commission that was appointed by Pope Paul VI had a, a bit of a split, between, we'll say, between liberal and conservative generally, Yeah, and uh, I think we've already mentioned this before, that the more conservative side—I mean, Benedict was probably a little bit on the liberal side—but when he saw the way things were going, he was not with Cardinal ronner and that group of people. And they—they they began *Communio* magazine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Henri de Lubach, Évès Congar, Hans Urs von Balazar. i mean, these are big names. Yeah. And they some began, of the great names yeah, we've been right. talking and, about and for sure. They began that magazine. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and they kind of carried on their take on things theological.
0: Now, John, as we were talking before, you were speaking to some of the the key theological reflections from Benin Sixteenth that had an impact upon you.
1: Well, in Introduction to Christianity, he has a one-page introduction. Uh, for one page, it's pretty good, and yeah. he talks about Clever Hans, <laughs> mm. and Clever Hans was given uh, a piece of gold, and he put it in his pocket, but it was kind of heavy, mm. so he traded it in for a couple of cows and the cows were a kind of a pain, so he traded them in for some goats, <laughs> yeah. and they were a little pain, so he traded in for a whetstone, and then the whetstone, why well, did I need this? So he threw it into a lake. Yeah. Now he's got nothing, and he says, this is kind of an analogy of religion yes. in our times. We are yeah. given this great, we're given the true religion, and we're just throwing it away.
0: Yeah, and it's just not something that happens overnight. I right. think... That analogy works so well because he's drawing it out over time. We exchange it for one thing, and then we exchange it for another, and then by the time we exchange it for the last thing, well, we don't really need it anymore, right? Yeah. We have forgotten its pricelessness, if you will.
1: If I could just interrupt, yeah. when he became Pope on April the 19th, 2005, I believe on that day he gave his famous dictatorship of relativism. Could I read this? will be about a 35-second read. Course, okay, yes, this is yes. the paragraph in which that dictatorship of relativism phrase is mentioned. How many winds of doctrine we have known in recent decades? How many ideological currents? How many ways of thinking? The small boat of thought of many Christians has often been tossed about by these waves, thrown from one extreme to the other, from Marxism to liberalism, even to libertinism, from collectivism to radical individualism, from atheism to a vague religious mysticism, from agnosticism to syncretism, and so forth. Every day new sects are created, and what St. Paul says about human trickery comes true, Mm. with cunning, which tries to draw those into error. This is from Ephesians chapter 4. Having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled today as fundamentalism. Whereas relativism, which is letting oneself be tossed and swept along by every wind of teaching, looks like the only attitude acceptable to today's standards. We are moving toward a dictatorship of relativism, which does not recognize anything as for certain, and which has at its highest goal one's own ego and one's own desires. Mm. This reminds me of a speech I heard recently at Franciscan, in which the president of the Council of Catholic Bishops, Bishop Kurt, says, uh, Frank Sinatra's "I'll Do It My Way." Mm,
0: yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. Reminds, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The word that struck me there when you were talking was the word "cunning." Yes. John, I, I've read that probably thirty-five times, mm-hmm. I, and every time I, I find something new, mm-hmm. uh, because that has become such a popular paragraph from one of his opening addresses. I mentioned the word "cunning" because that really, really is what defines Satan. That is what defines the yes. ad- adversary. He is subtle. Yes. You know, in Genesis 3, 1 there, um, when he is subtle, uh, that is a Hebrew word that means to exploit nakedness, but it very much speaks to that cunning way of the adversary. And in 2016, gosh, that was just 11 years ago, and how much more are we under this dictatorship of relativism 11 years later? He truly was speaking prophetically there. You know, we have this tendency to, John, look at truth as not something absolute, but something arbitrary, you know, what we make of it. And I could not say enough that we must remember, truth is not subject to time. Truth is not subject to what we make of it in our own arbitrary way. Correct. No, it's something that is definitive. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am a way, a truth, and a life. No! He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In, in the Greek there, he's speaking in the imperative absolute sense, right? He is the sum total of all things. This really gets to the heart of our faith, John, because if we think there is something else out there that is going to fulfill our deepest longing, our deepest desire, our deepest ache outside of Jesus Christ, then we will be left empty, what Benedict Sixteenth wants us to see about Jesus is that he is calling us into a personal relationship with him, and we just need to open our hearts. You had mentioned Jesus of Nazareth earlier. This is what Benedict himself said about the book Jesus of Nazareth. This book is my personal search for the face of the Lord. My personal search for the face of the Lord. So what Benedict wants us to see ultimately is that we are all to be on this journey where we are seeking the face of the Lord. And how can we do that if we have a truncated or disjunctive picture of Jesus Christ, this fragmented picture of Jesus Christ based upon what we think he is? Jesus Christ— the God-man entered into human history so as to reveal the fullness of truth, so as to reveal the fullness of love, so as, John, to reveal man's human potential in the light of divinity. Yeah. We are baptized into his very life and death, as we were, we were reflecting last week, and in so doing, we are called into this beautiful relationship with him whereby we live in that absolute unconditional love and ultimately giving glory to God.
1: Yeah, I would like to give a sales pitch for Jesus of Nazareth. That is an excellent book, and followed by The Passion and Death of Christ, the second book, and then the rather shorter one, The Birth of Christ, the Incarnation.
0: The Infancy Narrative. Yeah, the Infancy
1: Narrative, yeah. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, the first several chapters of that has an excellent introduction into biblical scholarship Mm. of recent times, which is Mm. uh, not an easy read. I mean, it's certainly not over anybody's head, but it's a I learned a lot from that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's the forward is 13 pages, and I've said on this radio program before and, and wherever I go to talk on sacred scripture, maybe the most important 13 pages you can read. Uh-huh. Because he breaks down the beauty of how to interpret sacred scripture and why the how is so important to better understand what this personal relationship with Jesus Christ yeah. is all about. Because if all you are about is the Jesus of history, or if all you're about is the Christ of faith, then there you have your truncated picture of just not the Jesus of history or the Christ of faith, but Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ entered into human history, and everything he says and does transcends human history, so it opens us up to faith. So therein lies Benedict's key phrase, we must use the hermeneutic of faith hermeneutic is just a fancy theological word that means interpretive key, that which unlocks, oh, okay. <laughs> right? So we use faith, the principle of faith, the gift of faith, the virtue of faith, to unlock sacred scripture. Yeah. Because how else can you understand a man who entered human history who, oh, by the way, was divine? Yeah. Benedict said it, John the Bible is a religious book, and what we've tried to do is take out religion from it.
1: Yeah. Now, he writes in German, I assume. you know, Yes. The, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, the word hermeneutic is an English word for some German word. Yeah. He also, I'm asking you a question, yeah. uses the word praxis a lot. Now, that translate, i mean, the word praxis means practice. Yes. But he uses that a lot, so, uh, you know, I, I guess what you want to get out of this is putting this into practice or yep. something? Yeah. Yep.
0: Yep, that's exactly what he's talking about, ultimately.
1: You know, the second book I read by him is The Spirit of the Liturgy. Boy, that was great. Mm. He begins by talking about the Jews leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, and uh, how important it was that their liturgy, in this 40 years, the liturgy was taught. And that's one of the things that made them different. That's one of the things that is but makes um, the Pentateuch kind of tough because there's so much liturgy in that. The last half of Exodus is liturgy, and then lots of other books go into liturgy too, but this was a big deal. Here is how you worship God, Mm -hmm. and the way you worship God, your liturgy is how you put your faith into a symbolic practice, and it is a big deal, and it just isn't You know, just standing around uh, waiting for church to end so you can get about your Sunday. It's, it's It's much more than that.
0: Yeah, God says to the Israelites, you are my chosen people, and I'm going to send you into the promised land. And why would he use that kind of language, the promised land? Well, so as to fulfill his covenant, which means you are not going to be given a land so as to be just another autonomous nation. No, you are going to be given a land so that you might worship. Mm -hmm. so that you might worship, because ultimately it is only then by entering into liturgy that you enter into covenant relationship with me. That great truth that says, I am yours, and you are mine. This is what Benedict XVI really wants to capture, that you are my chosen people, and in liturgy you enter into covenant relationship with me. So I'm going to give you this land, and in so doing, I'm going to be bringing you into relationship with me. Yeah. You have a line, John, from Benedict on his use of cult, I know.
1: Maybe this is it. Okay, law without foundations in morality becomes injustice. When human affairs are so ordered that there is no recognition of God, there is a belittling of man. Then worship, that is the right kind of cult, of relationship with God, is essential for the right kind of human existence in the world.
0: The word cult was very important to Benedict Sixteenth. Yeah. We hear that word cult, and it kind of gets us a little uh, nervous because we think of an occult, which is different than the word cult itself, right? Because the word cult simply means to worship. The word culture comes from the Latin cultus, which means to worship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so our culture is a reflection ...of how we spend our time, which, as we've talked about on more than one occasion, John, is why we need to be spending our time well, that our lives out in the world are a reflection of our worship of God. Yes. So what Benedict XVI wants us to see is that a culture is going to be at its best when it worships the one true God.
1: Culture, how we spend our time, depends upon the next thing up, religion, mm-hmm. and I would say atheism is as much religion as Christianity or any other uh, religion you wish to mention. Mm -hmm. And when we take a look at how people spend their free time, I'm thinking of clubs where drinking and uh, all kinds of things go on. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Drug issues. These are, I mean, how people spend their free time, and some of it is quite harmless. I have no problem with baseball. Um, But some of it is pretty destructive, and it reflects your religion. People who are going out to spend times rather wildly— that's a reflection of their religion. I'll call it an atheistic, agnostic, however you want to call it, I'll do it my way type of religion. Yeah. That's what our culture is descending into, and that's a reflection of the religion that our culture has, because we've seen it, you know, we kind of live in a post-Christian culture right now, and, and you can see it around us.
0: Yeah, and, Benedict Sixteenth would want us to look at two words, uh, kairos and kronos, right? Kairos is God's time, grace time purpose-driven time. Mm -hmm. Kronos is man's time, right? That time we put into our iPads and iPhones and calendars, whatnot, right? Okay, Kairos invades Kronos when, where, but the liturgy. Yes. So if we are entering into the liturgy as we ought for Pope Benedict XVI, then Kronos, right, will assume, will come to understand what Kairos is all about. Yeah. Grace time, purpose-driven time. And I highlight this, John, because in what you're saying right now, if we are living in God's grace, if we are living in Kairos, God's purpose-driven time, God's grace time, then we're going to better understand, well, how to spend our time. This past Sunday, we heard from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, right, and Koheleth, Vanity, oh vanities. The word vanity comes from Latin vanus, which simply means emptiness or wastefulness or otherwise a waste of time. You know, if it's Solomon or someone in Solomon's court, he's simply looking back on his life and saying, man, what a waste of time. Why? Because he spent it, Well, what were we just talking about, John? He spent it within this idea that if we find the sum total and value of what we do here on earth minus God, For Koheleth, that is a waste of time. And so, this reflection is important, John, because this really gets to the heart of our faith in so many ways. How are we spending our time? How are we spending our time? Are we spending it watching too much baseball? I mean, baseball's fine, right? But if we're watching six hours of baseball, if we're playing five hours of Xbox, if we're playing 10 hours of Wii, if we're doing these things, it's just a waste of time. Amusement's good, amusement's fine, amusement's necessary. But all within that cardinal virtue of temperance, that word that means balance. And so for Benin sixteenth, he wants us to see that if we are doing things in our time when we're not worshiping God, that still all the while reflect God, we are spending time well, and that is what's going to create a culture of love, a civilization of love.
1: Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, one other little thing, if I can just change topics. I was woken up the day he retired, and it was—I think—was listening to NPR. That's the station was on the radio that woke me up, and they were saying sarcastic things about him. And they, just, I, what was wrong with him? I thought well, nothing wrong with this papacy, and they said, "Well, he had somewhat lost the emphasis of the Catholic Church had declined a little bit." And I said, "No, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute." Mm. During his pap—during the papacy of John Paul II and his own, they did a lot to save the Catholic Church and Christianity as a whole because. Mm. Priests were leaving uh, their vocation, ordained priests, sisters as well. Huge numbers of sisters were lost. Attendance on Sunday Mass from about 80 to 75% had dropped to about 30%. Now, John Paul II, and he as his chairman of the doctrine of the faith, stanched that. It began gradually to rise up a little bit. Vocations improved a little bit. Mm -hmm. And by the end of Benedict's papacy, the Catholic Church was solidly, uh, believed in the resurrection of Christ, Trinity, uh, believed in the virgin birth, believed in no abortion, believed in uh, marriage, uh, no sex outside of marriage. All of this was still there and solidly Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i grateful that they were able to save that. And Pope Francis has advanced that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another little thing I just want to point out, he made a Cardinal Levator, former uh, Archbishop of San Francisco, yes. as his yes. uh, successor at the uh, Office of the Doctrine of the Faith. And... Um, one of his first assignments was to uh, go into the uh, Masiel scandal. Mm, and The Legionnaires uh, yeah, of Christ. The, yeah, yeah, Legionnaires of Christ. And it was uh, under Pope Benedict's papacy that that awful instance happened. And just another little thing, uh, it was during the 70s when a lot of this priest abuse thing was happening. There wasn't headlines, but it was happening during that time. By the time yeah. it broke on the scene in 2002, uh, it had ceased. But... Um, that's what happens when you have this loosey goosey um type of church, those many of those liberal churches that were around at that time uh, aren't around anymore or they're in greatly decreased numbers.
0: no, true, as well as religious communities. One of the things that you're seeing in two thousand and sixteen is that uh you have some of these unorthodox religious communities all but disappearing, yes, and at the same time you see the rise and and these other religious communities that are very faithful to the teachings of the Catholic Church. I mean, they are growing exponentially, um, and especially here in the United States. So that's a good thing to see, and that is a reflection, John, of the papacy of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And yes, you're right to bring up uh, what Benedict XVI did there with Legionnaires of Christ, because ultimately Benedict XVI and Pope Francis have done, and I would dare say, a very good job <laughs> All things being considered, of cleaning up so much of this um, scandal that has been highlighted over the past 14 years, and once again was back in the news last year with uh, um, with the movie um, that brought in the oh, Boston yeah, Globe right. and
1: Spotlight or something. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, anyhow, John, all these things that we are talking about are quite important, as they are reflection of Benedict XVI, especially in light of why we are here each and every Monday evening to talk about these great Christian thinkers that uh, while they are great Christian thinkers, and we, we reflect into their thought and what makes them so great, they are also uh, human beings who understand their frailty, who understand their weakness, and in so doing, lean into God's grace to become uh, the people that they have become, and in many cases, of course, saints. So this time has been uh, well spent. You know, John, uh, this morning when I was driving over to uh, this studio... I was thinking, we are pretty much out of Great Christian Thinkers to talk about. So what we're going to do next Monday is wrap up our reflections on the Great Christian Thinkers. And uh, honestly, I don't know what that looks like. We're going to take this to prayer over the next week. But our next time together, sadly enough, will be at least uh, our last time together in relationship to these Great Christian Thinkers. Um, But uh, anyhow... I do look forward to that, and I don't know, John, if you had any other closing thoughts as it relates to Benedict the Sixteenth.
1: Uh, Benedict the Sixteenth to me is a giant. Yeah, I think that he will be canonized and a doctor of the Church sometime in the future. That's just a prediction. I can't have nothing yeah. to do about that. But uh, he is—he was brilliant, and his books are are numerous. And you mentioned his uh, talks that he gave on the—he gave quite a few talks on the great <laughs> Christian thinkers. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, I consider myself to be a Benedict XVI Catholic.
0: Yeah, amen to that. Yeah, it's interesting, as we're reflecting into Benedict XVI within this theme of the Great Christian Thinkers, we have been indebted to him because we've been drawing from him um, and his series of Wednesday audiences on the Great Christian Thinkers. We haven't talked about that yet, but uh, uh, yeah, we should highlight that, huh? You know, uh, one last postscript from me, John, and that is, uh, you know, you mentioned his retirement. He's doing two things in his retirement. He's spending his time as a contemplative. I mentioned that last week. Um, And he's also writing. You know, so we should be praying for Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI because, yes, for his health, but also he still has more to contribute. He is still theologizing, if you will, as a great Christian thinker. This is the first theologian that we've talked about over the last two and a half years, John, that is still alive. And he's still doing a great deal of writing. I was talking about someone who's a, who's a Pope Benedict XVI guy, and he says, he, I can't wait until I can get my hands on some of the stuff he has been writing since he has retired. So we should be praying for that, because I, I think there's going to still be uh, many more nuggets, if you will, into that classic definition of faith, huh? Yeah. faith-seeking understanding. I think I
1: heard you in conversation say, yes, he is writing, but these are not likely to be published until after the death of Pope Francis. Yes,
0: yes. That's speculation because people feel that that would interfere with potentially um, this papacy. So it would be till afterwards, yeah. Anyhow, um, with that, John, let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth.